Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We've got some winning in Australia we're going to talk about. We've actually been covering this for a long time, Google and Facebook versus media. Um, we're going to talk about that. We've got, you know, the, the, the beginning of some winning in B2B distribution, um, looking at uh, tech startup M&A and investments by the incumbent B2B distributors. We're going to check that out too. Some not winning stories, looking at not platform companies. Uh, we've talked about Netflix and, and, and other linear companies that have fallen out of favor uh, these past few months. We're going to also look at Carvana. And then we're also going to talk about China and what's going on with um, foreign investments into the Chinese stock market. So let's jump on in. Let's start with a little bit of Australia winning. Basically, this story is something we've talked about for a long time, right? You've got your large content tech platform monopolies, Facebook and Google, who, when you're a tech monopoly, who do you take advantage of? It's not the consumer. You take advantage of the, of the producer, the supplier. So in the case of media, uh, we've had Tim Kendall on the show, Facebook's first director of monetization. We've talked about this topic at Infinitum, where basically content platforms have destroyed the media business's business model, right? Um, they've forced all these media and news outlet uh, publications to put their credibility and their journalistic standards by the wayside in order to chase whatever is going to be the most salacious, the most triggering piece of content, piece of news, even if it's fake news. Actually, better if it's fake news, frankly, because those more contentious stories, exacerbating stories are going to get what? More engagement, more shares. And what does that mean on Facebook and Google? That means more ability to monetize those eyeballs and those clicks and those impressions, right? So the, the Facebook and Google algorithm promotes fake news. It promotes the more incendiary content, the divisive content, right? It makes Facebook and Google more money. And clearly the media organizations have figured this out. Their business model has been destroyed. They need money just to stay alive and they're stuck. So enter... Something actually good done by the government for a change. And that is Australia. Um, Australia actually passed a law a little over a year ago in early 2021. We were covering this and have since covered this many, many times. Um, I also went on Bloomberg News, including Bloomberg Daybreak, which is like Bloomberg in Australia, because Sundar at the time, still head of Google, threatened to leave Australia if this law was passed. I said, Australia, call this guy's bluff. There's no way he has the wherewithal to truly deliver on this threat. And sure enough, he did not. Zuckerberg, different story. Zuckerberg, I think, would have gone full tilt, would have absolutely temporarily left Australia um, and would have taken it there to that brinkmanship. Sundar, he's, he's, not, he's not a founder CEO. He's a, he's a manager CEO. He doesn't have it in him to fight like that. Can't get into the trenches do some bare knuckle boxing, which is what was needed. And Sundar, of course, capitulated. Go check out our videos on that. Anyway, now law passed. What has happened? It's been a resounding success. But if you go read tech media publications, it's a mixed bag instead of a resounding success, right? Instead of this being a resounding success, that this formula and this recipe should now be copied and emulated throughout the rest of the world, 
in principle, forcing tech monopolies to treat their producers, their suppliers more fairly, right? Or not even just more fairly, just not completely taking absolute advantage of them, right? This isn't just applicable to Google and Facebook. This is applicable to Amazon. This is applicable to Apple with app developers, Amazon with third-party sellers, right? Um, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Facebook and Google, in less than a year, have paid more than $150 million to Australian news organizations. But again, you go read the, the tech media on this, right? This one from The Information, and it's a mixed bag, right? They say, yeah, $150 million paid. That's like the first half of the paragraph, right? But I interviewed a bunch of people in Sydney for six weeks, and I found plenty of flaws. It's unfair to some newer, smaller and newer outlets. It builds a dependence on tech money that could backfire on the news business, right? It's, oh, well, this is, this is good, but, it, but you know, there's still issues. Can we just, can we stop that? Can we just take one moment? And actually say, you know what? Plus one in the column in the fight against big tech. Yeah, we actually got to win finally <laughs> after all this time. And surprise, surprise, it didn't come from the US and it didn't come from the EU. It came from Australia. I mean, can we talk about that? Where is that in this article? Right? Where is this article saying, hey, US government, EU government, all your big tech commissions, all your, you know, hurrah, hurrah in Congress about reigning in big tech in Australia beat us to it. And look, it's actually working phenomenally. No law is going to be perfect. We all understand that. But relatively, this is phenomenal. We've finally found a way to get big tech, big tech to open up their pockets and help out who? Their customers. Their customers being suppliers and producers. You go read this article. Oh, well, there's this problem. Oh, well, there's that problem. Oh, well, you know, da, 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 right? It's uh-uh. I want the positivity. I want the optimism. If, if you have ridicule, direct that ridicule at this country's officials, because what are they doing? And I guarantee on a relative basis, we've got a hell of a lot more regulators and, and bureaucrats than Australia does. Those people, I guarantee you, are also paid a lot more money than the Australian uh, bureaucrats and regulators. So what's up? Hmm? A big win. Um, the article does say that Canada is actually looking to emulate this model. Once again, where is the uproar? What is the U.S. government and all of our nonprofits and lobbyists and, and regulators, what are they doing? Are they asleep at the wheel or, at, or worse? Are they getting paid off by big tech? Or both? Because I don't really see anything happening. B2B distribution, largest industry in the United States. $8 trillion in size, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. What is the logistics, the 3PL in the trucking industry? It's sub, sub 1.5 trillion. So 8 trillion B2B distribution, sub 1.5 trillion between logistics and trucking. U.S. automotive, right? Selling cars, kind of a big industry, like 1.2, 1.3 trillion, right? B2B distribution is massive. A month ago on our B2B newsletter, we covered, so what kind of tech startup investing and tech startup M&A are the incumbent large B2B distributors partaking in, right? Just in the past few weeks, Amazon launched a billion dollar VC fund. Home Depot launched a $150 million VC fund. Manufacturers, right, who the distributors are buying from are investing in digital disruptors who 
would be regarded as, as direct competitors to distributors, right? So manufacturers are trying to disrupt the distributors. Home Depot and Amazon disruptors are trying to come into B2B distribution and take share from the distributors. Everyone's kind of coming, piling into B2B distribution. So what are the distributors doing? So a month ago, we published some of our initial research. We tracked about 49 tech startup investments and or acquisitions over the past five years. Not a great result, frankly, right? Um, there is there is a silver lining, but I mean, 49 deals, $8 trillion industry, 49 deals, five years, mind you. Um, the silver lining is that you can see here, this is from our that newsletter a month ago, 16 deals were done in the year of 2021, up from 10. That's an aggregate of both investing and M&A, right? So you got 49 transactions done by 26 distributors, right? There are hundreds of billion-dollar distributors doing over a billion dollars in revenue. It's still a relatively small population of distributors partaking in this activity. It needs to be much greater given the current state of affairs in B2B distribution. So we decided to dig even deeper into who's driving this activity. And so what we found was pretty interesting is actually 30 of those deals came from nine distributors. That means the other 19 deals were done by 17 distributors, right? So you can you can see kind of a gravitational pull towards these nine distributors. What was then more interesting is that those nine distributors fall into roughly two, two general buckets of B2B distribution. The first bucket is kind of, you could call them more loosely like construction or contractor kind of building related B2B distributors. Basically, you have building material distributors and HVAC distributors, right? So they're both catering to kind of contractor customers in large part. Um, they're both related to kind of building and construction of some sort, either maintenance or building new construction. Um, so that's one big bucket. And then the other bucket is basically kind of IT and electronics. So IT distributors and then electronic, one particular electronic distributor called Avnet, where Avnet's selling to manufacturers, the electronic components, IT distributors are kind of taking the finished products and then selling to the end business. But, but they're all in that world, let's call it, kind of IT and electronic distribution. So those are basically the main two buckets. Those two buckets collectively had nine distributors who accounted for 60% of all tech transactions over the past five years. Interesting, right? And so we looked at it even further. You can see here the breakdown between, you know, we had 30 transactions. The majority of those are kind of in the investment realm, right? So taking a minority investment, it's roughly two-third, one-third, 60-40 split here roughly between investments to acquisitions. Makes sense, right? You can, it's easier to do more, uh, investments and, and less acquisitions, much kind of greater uh, lift in terms of doing a, a, a controlling tech acquisition. Avenant and Ingram, Ingram Micro and Ferguson Ventures by kind of total deal count really led the charge. Interestingly, Avenant and Ingram both have not done a transaction since 2020. Um, actually, no one in the kind of IT and electronic distribution space has done a transaction since 2020, except for tech data. And they are actually a, a redistributor. So we actually love the role that these redistributors or two-step distributors uh, 
have because they are selling to essentially a distributor who then sells to the end business customer. We worked with Dot Foods and have talked about Dot Foods. Dot Foods actually did two tech acquisitions. Dot Foods is also a two-step distributor, but in the food distribution space, right? So when you are kind of a redistributor, you're in a really beautiful place strategically to provide tech tools and, and services to your distributors that they can then use with their end business customer, right? You can really have a very wide and scalable impact on your industry by enabling essentially your customers, right? Uh, with these kind of new digital business model type opportunities. Whereas if you are an actual distributor, you have a little bit more channel conflict when trying to embrace these kind of new disruptive business models. So really like the role of uh, that redistributor uh, model. We also did another video talking about DNH where they are also kind of going after a marketplace type model, but in a build from scratch model, you can go check out that video as well. We also looked at what was the rationale for these transactions. And you can see our turquoise color here is basically saying the large majority of all these deals were to look at providing tools and products and capabilities to the customer channel. You look at Ferguson Ventures activity is actually all uh, minority investments and all in uh, technologies that would help Ferguson's customers, which are essentially contractors, right? Ferguson's also investing in other VC funds that then invest in tech companies that would help some segment of their kind of customer population. So it's not just Ferguson alone, but really kind of the large majority of all this uh, technology investment is done to say, how do I enable my customer? How can I give them a, a service or a tool to run their business better um, or to, you know, especially if I'm a, a redistributor or a two-step distributor, how do I invest in technology that could help the distributor customer then interact better with the end customer, right? So you see that kind of pretty universally across the entire spectrum of these uh, subset of, of 30 transactions that we've looked at. So we give some examples in our latest newsletter to go deeper into what are some examples of tech investments or tech acquisitions uh, that have enabled that customer channel. So go check out that, uh, that newsletter for some more detail. And I think the last interesting thing, if you look at um, another player, which we talk about in this newsletter is uh, Builders First Source. They weren't a leader by quantity of deals, but in terms of dollars invested, they absolutely would take the lead with their $450 million acquisition of Paradigm last summer, which is doing what? Which is providing software to uh, contractors, right? Uh, throughout various parts of the kind of building process. And, um, and then they also did a second acquisition, much smaller though, of basically just an asset purchase of a SoftBank funded company that went belly up. And, you know, I think they got a pretty good deal on that as well, but much smaller in terms of size. But if you look at which B2B distributor just overall has, has really leaned in and, and spending dollars in a public way on this theme of kind of new digital business models while also enabling your customer channel with technology, Builders First Source. Uh, it's really cool what they've been doing. And we're almost at the one year mark, right? So uh, of, of when they kind of announced the transaction, then it had to close. So we're still early to see what the true impact is and, and how that integration has gone. We will be sure to track that.
Don't you worry. Article here talking about how China has silenced a prominent market analyst for basically talking about the outflows from the Chinese stock market, right? So um, outflow of foreign investment, right? So foreign dollars either going in, inflow, or going out, outflow. What do you want to see? You want to see inflow, not outflow, right? You want more foreign money coming into your stock market rather than less. Fifth largest state-owned bank in China, right? This is the managing director and head of research. Just had his WeChat account, his social media frozen because he started to talk about the slowdown in the Chinese economy and some of these uh, investment outflows, right? If you look at Chinese state media, this is the Global Times, that's CN. Chinese stock market bucks trend of capital outflows from emerging economies. It's just from last week, right? So if you look at their thing, they say, hey, China's stock market saw considerable capital inflows in April. Even as stock markets in other emerging economies saw major outflows due to the U.S. interest rate, when the Fed raises interest rates, uh, people get more risk averse. They want to take their money out of riskier markets and kind of bring that back flight to safety kind of stuff, right? This is the Chinese article. In April, emerging markets on outflow of $9.5 billion from their stock markets and an inflow of $5.5 billion from their bond markets, right? So going from stocks to bonds, bonds are safer, stocks are riskier. But the Chinese stock market bucked the trend and attracted $1 billion in capital inflows. So they're saying, you know, you have a net net uh, outflow in emerging markets of $4 billion, right? 9.5 billion left stocks, 5.5 billion into bonds. And this is where they get really tricky with this. So this guy was really talking, the, the, the managing director who was taken off of social media, I think he was really talking about stock market outflows. That article from the Chinese state media very slyly, easily just lumps together kind of, oh, we had a net we had, we had capital inflows of a billion dollars. If you look at this Reuters article, which is then talking about the Chinese stocks having net outflows, right? So if you look here, the Chinese stock market had, had net outflows in March of, say, around $7 billion. And then they had, I don't know, a billion or so in April. So what the Chinese state media articles is essentially, I'm assuming they're doing, is saying, well, we had a billion outflow from the stock market in April, and I guess you had two billion inflow into the bonds in April, if they're going to get to a billion, if that stat is even true. So you've got kind of the state media working to, again, control opinion. Hey, China's good. We got money coming in. Conveniently obfuscating between stock and bond inflow, outflow. And then you've got them silencing the managing director at one of these big investment banks who wants to talk about, hey, you know, our economy is slowing down. Hey, our stock market is having a lot of outflows. You can't talk about that. And now what's interesting is this article was kind of published at the end of April. They didn't have the, the bond data for April yet. But you can see here also massive outflows from the bond market, actually even before March, uh, but in February as well, where you had probably about... 11 or 12 billion outflow in February. And then you had probably about 17 billion outflow in March. Actually difficult to find the April numbers. Coincidence? I think not. But you got Financial Times article here just from yesterday. So mid-May here. Actually saying the April outflow was just as great as March, around 16 billion 
Foreign investors sold more than $16 billion worth of Chinese debt in April, taking net outflows from the country's bond market to a record 235 billion RMB, which I guess is, uh, I don't know what, close to $40 billion. Yeah, roughly. Now I look at that, if you have the April data, then this Chinese article, I don't know what, they're, they're completely fudging the numbers. Because if the Financial Times is saying the April bond outflows were just as great, basically, as March, a few days before the Financial Times article is published, Chinese state media is saying, no, 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 we had a net uh, inflow of a billion dollars across both stocks and bonds, also kind of fudging the delineation between stock outflow and bond inflow outflow. Now I read the Chinese article and... It just lies. It's just fake news. Clearly, thankfully, finally, I, um, some investors are weary of putting money into Chinese markets. Hmm, probably a good idea. Been saying it for years. If the U, if you think the U.S. economy is built up on hot air and a house of cards by printing almost ten trillion dollars, we pale in comparison to what the Chinese economy has done. They've, if we printed $10 trillion, they've easily printed over $30 trillion. They were printing money long before COVID. So were we, but never to that degree. They make us look like complete amateurs in the, in the money printing department. And that's what's so scary for them conquering Hong Kong. They took it. They stole it. They captured it. Hostile takeover. And then using Hong Kong as a mechanism to bring what has been historically a very closed and insular economy, right? The global economy has been somewhat insulated from a financial standpoint to the money printing that China does, right? Supply chain standpoint, globally, we're very connected to China. But from a financial standpoint, they've been somewhat disconnected. Now, in just literally the past, what, eight, nine months between them conquering Hong Kong and us creating a vacuum in Russia, taking out all of our banking relationships, technology relationships with Russia, who has filled those, that vacuum? Oh, China. So now you've seen a massive expansion of the Chinese financial tentacles. And if you think the U.S. government creates risk for the global financial system by how much money we are printing, China puts us to shame. And that's what's, that is very scary. So thank God we're seeing some pullback from investors putting money into their markets. But I also don't think it's enough to stem the advancement of them just more tightly integrating the RMB and their different payment systems and banking systems and kind of reciprocal trade relationships, right? Buying materials from China in RMB as opposed to, you know, for example, dollars or, or other, you know, or euros. It's not good news, right? As, as the RMB kind of proliferates its use in other economies, not the Chinese economy, oof, then that means that their ability to print money and further stand up their economy on hot air, everyone else that is building more of a reliance on the RMB is essentially taking on that risk. Very scary stuff. Carvana, once a darling of Wall Street and just kind of used car selling in general, went from a peak of $370 a share to now $32 a share. A massive decline, right? They're worth less than 10% of where they were at their peak in August of 2021. How is that possible? You shouldn't expect for the stock market to make sense. Okay, let's just start there, right? When you have 
an environment where we've printed the amount of money that we've printed, you can't expect this stuff to always make sense. You have to understand we're living in a world of extremes. There is a modicum of sense to what's going on, and, and here's what I can scratch together. One, it's not a platform business, right? They are buying and then reselling inventory, right? They're buying used cars, maybe fixing them up a little bit. They know what to buy, they fix them up a little bit, and then they make it a really seamless and enjoyable buying experience. They've got these nice showcases, which are good marketing, uh, elevators with all these cars, and historically, they had a lot of growth. And so when you have growth, that can make up for not making money. But if you are a linear business and your growth slows and you're not making money, you're, you're in hot water. Now, should they be as low as they are? I don't know. In Q2 of last year, their revenue was up 200% from the year prior. And they actually made, you know, 80 million bucks or 20 million bucks for net income, 80 million bucks for operating income. They made a little bit of money. Not a lot, not good margins, but they had a lot of growth and, you know, they made a little bit of money. Then you look at Q3, growth was up, but not as much. And then they lost a little bit of money. Q4, same kind of thing. It was up, but not as much. And then they lost a little bit more money. Then you look at now this most recent quarter, uh, Q1, same kind of story. Actually, revenue went down. It was actually pretty much back at, you know, where they were in Q3. So revenue was still up from the year prior, from Q1 of 2021. But compared to where growth was in Q3 of last year, where the revenue, they're basically flat, right? So that's not good. And then they lost a good chunk of money. So those are the bad, those are the wrong signs. Right. They also missed on the guidance they were providing to Wall Street on their earnings for the past three quarters. And they missed by greater and greater amounts. So, you know, you can have these high flying valuations if you have growth. If you don't have growth, you got to show some profitability. You got to be able to make some money. And if you can't show the growth and you can't show you make money, then yeah, you get whacked pretty aggressively. That's a good thing. Um, should they be worth literally less than 10% of their value in August, 2021? I don't know, but this is actually a good thing, frankly, in general, especially if you are a linear business, but even if you're a platform business as well, but you know, where the, where the platform businesses are more asset light, it should allow them to be more flexible and more responsive to the ups and downs of this kind of oscillating economy, right? What we've seen is the platform business model, because it's asset light, is able to take those shocks to the system and be able to kind of capitalize on the ups more quickly uh, and more efficiently, and then kind of minimize and 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 uh, mitigate losses when you have a downturn, right? On uh, better than the linear businesses, right? Because the linear businesses have have heavier and more hard fixed assets, and the platforms don't, right? So you generally see that play out. Um, Netflix is an example of that. Carvana, I think, is another example of that. It's hard to find a good public comp. This is an okay comp. They're selling cars. This is car gurus. Been around for a lot longer. It doesn't have as aggressive of a of a growth story, right? They're not as like as as new on the block as say a Carvana is. But if you look at August of 2021, they were at 30 bucks a share. Now they're at 23 bucks a share. So they're still down. And, and, and 
I mean, this is even more drastic. In March of this year, they peaked at about $46 a share, and now they're half that, right? So you're seeing a correction there, but it's nowhere near, you know, it's called a 50% correction as opposed to like a 90 or a 95% correction, right? It's not a perfect comp, but it, again, they're both selling cars, car gurus, asset light, platform model, um, and Carvana, Linear, and had much greater growth expectations. So there was a lot more hype around Carvana, which set them up for a bigger crash. But again, you, you can kind of see the, the bands, right? Of this just much more extreme on the linear case with a lot of hype and then just more mitigated from the platform case. That's it for us today. Winner take all. Thank you for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.